0: Hi, thanks so much for tuning into the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast. Every week, I do a deep dive into the strategies and mindset behind launching, scaling, and leading a high-impact nonprofit. I'm your host, Brooke Ritchie Babbage, and you are listening to episode number 27. In this episode, I have a wonderful conversation with Charlie Vazquez. Charlie is a storyteller, a facilitator of multi-century healing experiences, and a Buddhist meditation practitioner. One of the things that I was really excited to talk with Charlie about is what he perceives to be the relationship between storytelling, social justice, and spirituality. In his work as an artist and meditation practitioner, and in his work as an organizational consultant, he blends these seemingly disparate elements into a single practice. Charlie and I talk about both the why, why storytelling is a tool for advancing social justice, why the linkage between storytelling and meditation why multi-sensory healing experiences and we talk about the how how can an organization that is doing high impact work improve its own storytelling the through line in this conversation is charlie's focus on doing work and helping others do work that centers our humanity in the work his storytelling is about centering the humanity of the people who are impacted by our work, as well as the people who are doing and stewarding the work. His multi-sensory practice is about helping each of us connect to our own humanity as a way to move through the often traumatic and definitely sometimes chaotic world of social justice work. It's a truly great conversation that blends the mindset and the strategy. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Charlie. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing, Brooke? I am doing well. I'm doing well. I'm very excited that we're finally making this conversation happen.
1: (laughs) Indeed, yes. I'm looking forward to it, too. Thank you.
0: Um, So, you know, like I I have said for quite some time, and I explained in our sort of pre-conversation, I've been really excited to talk with you about storytelling. But in (laughs) particular, you have a really, um, I think, unique and beautiful both approach to storytelling and how you blend it with your meditative practice, which we'll talk about. Um, but also you have always aimed your storytelling at social justice work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm really excited to sort of talk about the, the why and the how of that. I'd like to start with with you um, and sort of how you you came to be doing this work and, um, and what it is that you do. I love how you describe yourself as a storytelling consultant, workshop facilitator, and Buddhist meditative meditation instruction mm-hmm. um, instructor. So how did you get started with storytelling and meditation?
1: Um, there are two sort of separate yet intertwined paths that have merged in, in recent years uh, more conspicuously. The storytelling, uh, I come from very, very, my, my family's Puerto Rican. I'm, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm a New Yorker. New York-born Puerto Rican, but I was raised by uh, immigrants, more or less. So at home, there was this very lively. My grandparents were very, very visual storytellers, mm. and as I didn't travel to the Caribbean uh, as a child, I actually didn't go until later in life. Um, my whole, my whole idea, my whole conception of, of Puerto Rico and like the motherland, if you will, was um, was formed through these, these stories that they would tell, um, usually about things that happened to them when they were young, because, since they left in, in their adolescence to, to New York. Um, and then there was other like stories of the fantastic and, and, and horror stories. And, um, so it's, it just was, I was a, a lit geek before I even really started learning how to read. And then when, like, yeah. once that happened, I was just like, wow, I knew at an early age that it meant something, it meant more to me than for most of my classmates' um, story and the arts in particular. Um, the Meditating, um, I guess the, my, I was always a searcher, I guess. Um, I was always a curious person and I didn't like saying, like, this is all you have. This is all, this is all there is. Like, um, so, um, you know, I grew up on the subway in New York City, seeing what else was out there. I wasn't afraid of very much. And I remember coming across, we went on a class trip to Chinatown when I was in third grade or so, and uh, they brought us into a storefront Mahayana temple. And I remember thinking, it smelled like incense and it was really quiet. They hushed us when we walked in. And I remember thinking, wow, this is such a peaceful, serene space. You know, Not like the apartment I live in, not like my street, <laughs> which was really loud and chaotic. <laughs> and uh something about the aesthetic i think and initially with buddhism it was the aesthetic and then as a teen and into my 20s starting to read more about it um there was an early fascination But i think in in more recent years i've made a fuller commitment yeah to to practicing daily and a lot of that includes meditation so they're they're, they're related they're connected you know
0: it's interesting i um I see a very real connection between searching, you said, yeah. we've always had a searching personally and creativity. Yeah, Like those two things I think are related. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just interesting that they manifest themselves. So practically in these strands that aren't often connected, but you really connect them.
1: Yeah. Well, I realize. I mean, I think I started writing about my life for the first time in the, you know, right before COVID. And then uh, once we were locked down, I was like, all right, let me get this first draft done. I realized that all the bands I was in, all the writing projects, all of the studies of uh, 35 millimeter photography pre-digital. You know, all those journeys into, um, all all those creative, all those creative journeys were in like meditations themselves. I mean, you you lose track of time and and, and you just sort of channel inspiration and hope to capture it in some way that other people can experience. So yeah, they are related. They are related.
0: You describe your work now as um, focusing on creating multi-sensory healing and engagement experiences for people. So so let's start with what is a multi-sensory healing and engagement experience? And do you see those experiences that you are working on um, and with other organizations with as being tied to storytelling and meditation?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the most recent culmination of, uh, well, it began, the, the roots of that began as an experiment. So when I was at Bronx Council on the Arts from 2013 through 2018, I collaborated. I was running the Bronx Writer Center. So I ran the literary programs uh, that were funded through the AEA and, and various other funders. And my collaborator was Juanita Lanzo, who ran the, the art gallery at Hostos Community College. So she was running the visual art department coincidentally we're both Puerto Rican uh, and we're both sort of curious about mixing things up and you know not keeping things too, too, too neat and orthodox so we started fusing, um, we started bringing writing workshops as, as part of the gallery programming and connecting what was happening visually in the gallery you know sort of uh, unpacking that information into writing experiences and then one time, just you know, sort of serendipitously, there was a dancer who happened to come through at the wrong time. She thought <laughs> she, she had her dates mixed up and she sat down for a minute to you know, it was in the summer to cool off. And she said, Do you mind if I just move around while you guys are writing and discussing? And we said, sure. So I stopped what was happening and said, All right, why don't you do why don't you do impromptu performance? Um, and we'll have the writers just write something spontaneously that wasn't scripted as part of the workshop. So that's where that's sort of the, the genesis of that. Now, you know, in, in, in meditation settings, there can be gongs and incense, and um, you can use uh, slide projectors, are great. Um, there's a number of, of, of different technologies and methods you can use to sort of appeal to the different senses um, in, in a creative or holistic setting. So
0: um and what's the benefit of that? I mean it sounds beautiful and amazing, but you've always I, I've always sort of read in your work it framed as being tied to healing, and building of community. Um why is multi-sensory and not better, but why multisensory as a I, way? It's a kind of
1: condition to it. We don't realize it sometimes. That's what happens in, in churches and in temples and So I I think that it's really deep in our DNA, um, regardless of of where we come from. I I think that there's something deeply um, ritualistic and healing about occupying a space with other people and and Mm -hmm. having the the senses appeal to in these, I mean, uh, sort of stimulated in this really sort of appealing way. Um, And I know also for creative writing, it helps to open up, you know, a lot of people come to workshops with inhibitions of is everyone else going to be better than me i'm not you know so it, it helps people relax i think and it helps people to get to know one another especially if they're sitting next to strangers so um and i think coming out of covid there's interest now like with the clemente soto center yeah. about getting people into space we're doing it virtually because of the delta variants now yes. <laughs> so we postpone the in-person ones but um we're going to come back to that when it's okay but about getting people in these spaces to close their eyes, to breathe, to listen to bells, whatever, and, and to sort of get out all these things they've been holding on to uh, related to COVID trauma.
0: Do you think that, I mean, COVID is definitely, um, I can see coming out of COVID the real yearning that people have to be in spaces together. Um, I think, healing spaces together and what you're describing, these multi-sensory spaces being natural for us, right, To to be sort of surrounded and engaging all of our senses. But do you think it also, or and, do you think it also is helpful for social justice work in general? I know, you know, when you and I met, Uh, you were just joining the Sterling Network and we were talking about um, the implications of your work for economic justice work and social justice work. I know you're an activist. Um, It would seem to me that a lot of people doing the work that we do Mm -hmm. navigate forms of trauma, navigate hardships, hold a lot um, of emotional weight as they move through their work. You do a lot of work with organizations around this, of this type, um, to help them navigate just being a social justice worker.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate that I, um, all the organizations I've worked for and with um, have sort of centered the experience of, of immigrant yeah. Black people, Latino people. So um, to me, that kind of is... Already, sort of the north star. Um, I started recognizing what you're talking about without intending to, without intending for this effect to occur. Um, when we were doing Bronx Memoir Project, I thought, well, people are just going to come and write, share stories, and it, it became like these weird therapy sessions, and yeah. <laughs> and strangers were holding hands, and people would start crying, and oh no, if you
0: tell go- them in oh, advance that I it's going to be that they won't come? Yeah, I'm
1: holding on to this for 20 years, and finally, you know, and so um i thought well let's just create those spaces and see what people bring to it yeah so i do think that they're restorative spaces and i've been really um really really inspired by the work of uh, angel Kilda williams out in oakland i like, she's originally from brooklyn she wrote a book called radical dharma and she is a zen a black zen practitioner Mm-hmm. who has, she's sort of building this entire uh, Black-identified Buddhist community uh, of, of people who identify with things in the karma and are approaching spirituality through an a- South Asian lens as opposed to a, a European lens. So I see a lot of that work happening out there, and it really motivates me, you know. And I think I'm still on that journey, but I think there's a lot of space for social justice work. A lot of that, too, for me, I grew up as the hip-hop movement was was being born. So the first artists I knew uh, were graffiti writers uh, and dancers, you know, and all of a sudden they were getting, you know, they didn't go to art school or anything like that. These were like self-taught kids from the hood who were helping to create a new movement. Just, they were just doing it. They were just doing it. They were picking stuff up and making stuff happen. Uh, and they were creating um, new new lives for themselves, and I, I found that inspiring as well. So I'm still figuring out how to connect it all, but I know that all of that stuff really inspires me, and I hope to contribute to it in some way, or at least to create opportunities for other people to engage in whatever that means for them.
0: Sounds like part of what's inspiring to you, going back to ha- your're describing yourself as being a searcher, being creative. The underlying um, through line or one of them seems to be spirituality, mm-hmm. and the role of spirituality, um, various forms of spirituality. You know, in particular, we're talking about your role as a Buddhist meditation mm-hmm. practitioner um, and instructor. But as I've done my social justice work, I think I have grown in my understanding or my belief of the role of um, you know, even my own meditation practice mm-hmm. um, and the role of sort of spirituality and helping me see shared humanity between people that it might be difficult to work with. Do you see an underlying importance of spiritual practice or meditative practice? Um, does that feel like it's central to you in your social justice work? I think it's
1: become more yeah. explicit. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it, must...
0: I think that happens. <laughs>
1: I think it was always there because I, I think that the creativity itself uh, connects people to something beyond them. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I think creativity was always the doorway uh, for me and also to create environments for other people to to, to do that for themselves uh, in, in whatever framework under the umbrella of whatever project. So, um, but yeah, I, I think coming out of COVID out of, out of the lockdown especially um, and having so much happen in that year and a half was just like, I'm, I'm starting to write about it now. And it just feels like it happened 20 years ago in some ways. It feels like it happened yesterday. Yeah. I've seen a lot, you know, outside
0: so. of time.
1: <laughs> it is totally outside of time. It really feels like that. So I
0: think that it's, it,
1: it's become more important for me and not like in a preachy way. I, I, have always uh, rejected um, you know, people telling me, Mm-hmm. how spirituality and God or whatever, whatever it is that you believe in works. I think we need to figure out what resonates with us, but, uh, and I think it's okay. You know, I, I think it's okay.
0: I've been really excited to have this conversation in part, um, because of what we've been talking about so far, but also, um, and because you're just an incredible storyteller, <laughs> right? There's a spiritual practice and, and just your, your creativity. Um, I, I, I appreciate you as a creative person person. Um, but I also am excited to talk about the work that you do with organizations, sort of helping them do their storytelling better um, and in different ways. And, you know, all fundraisers hear about the importance of storytelling and connecting to donors. And um, I think that may not come as easily for people. Yeah. I think um, I, I like that you bring your passion and interest and talents um, to help others. Um, And so I'd love to talk for just a little bit about how you, in your practice with nonprofit leaders and organizations that you partner with as a consultant, help them weave together storytelling and either the multisensory healing or the meditation, sort of weave together the different pieces that you are integrating in your own work.
1: How do I help them do that? Um, Well, normally I think I... I normally help people with particular project proposals. Uh, usually, the narrative is what people bring me in for. So either they have a first draft they want me to look at and work on, or they want me to sort of help them build it from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Um, at the, I, I like to reverse engineer things. Um, so let's start with the impact. Let's start with what the outcomes. Where where are we going to be when this proposal is over? What what is the impact? What are, what are we coming out of this with? Uh, and then sort of go backwards and go, what are all the steps that we need to do there? And then what is the story you're trying to tell? Mm -hmm. So the Bronx Memoir Project is always the easiest one to explain because I I, I did it for so long. Um, We knew that there was a a lot of people in the Bronx who were either writers and shut out of the greater New York City area writing community for whatever reason, uh, geography, economics, you you name it, uh, language, and we also knew that there was a lot of people in the Bronx who had stories to tell whether they, whether they considered themselves writers or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we put the, the proposal out to the NEA. They fully funded it the first year. Uh, and the goal there was to document as many of those stories as possible and to compile them into an anthology mm-hmm. that not only we'd be able to sell, um, we'd be able to give to the writers. It would become their first official writing credit, you know, just to get people just to sort of help move them or to show for them to show their grandkids, right. If they're not writers. Right. So, um, so that project, you know, what we told the NEA was we, you know, we had to get into the statistics and say, you know, there's a, because of the nature of the subways, the distance, for people to travel to uh, Brooklyn and downtown New York where most of the writing community and the publishing industry is sort of centered. Um, People here are marginalized uh, economically, racially, you name it, go down the list. You know, we we probably have that going on. Um, And it just made sense. So it also helped to create a publishing uh, mechanism within the council itself to then produce other books later on. Um, So the story we wanted to tell the NEA was we need to connect. The, the people of the Bronx, you'd assume they we mm. connected to uh, the, the greater publishing and creative writing community of New York, we're mm. largely not. Mm. Well, we largely weren't, now more so because of that project than others. So um, that was the story we were trying to tell there with other organizations it's, it's, it's the same thing I look for. It's like, what, what's the end point here? What are you trying to achieve? What do you want to come out with? What does that impact look like? And who are the people, right? Who, who are the people that you are going to serve? And, and what are they like? And what stories of transformation can we tell about them to convince a funder yeah. to yeah. say, yes, I want to partner with you. We they always said, don't look at funders like ATMs. Like, invite them to partner with you on something that means something to their values, right? So aligning values. So what is the story of transformation and how does that, how, how does the funder also want to achieve that? You know,
0: I love that story of transformation. What, what are the core elements of a story of transformation, right? If I'm a nonprofit leader and, and actually let me pause it. It strikes me that this is powerful, both in terms of fundraising and outside of fundraising. If I am running, you know, a small organization or a growing organization, there's so many stories Mm -hmm. that I can tell to different stakeholders, right? So, you know, we're talking about project proposals, um, but there are stories to tell to get, um, non-institutional donors. There's stories to tell to get coalition members to join a fight, Um, So my question is sort of about storytelling in general. If I'm trying to craft a story for my organization to activate a stakeholder, right, to engage and activate a stakeholder, what are the core elements? How do I show transformation? Um, And you also talked about the who, right? Who are the the people that I should be engaging to tell the story? Do those questions...
1: Sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think in 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 our kind of work, it really is about the who. And there's different who's, right? So who's doing right. the work? Who's being served? Who's funding it?
0: <laughs> who's <laughs> whose voices in- are heard? Yeah. Who's
1: writing the final report? You know. That's who's, right. Who's, who's <laughs> keeping? Um, so uh, how do you show that transformation? Well, okay. So it's, it's all about the people. So. What how do you do this? You you humanize it. So for instance, you can use statistics and say, you know, 17% of people, blah, blah, blah I mean, or in, in the pre-survey, this many percentage of people, okay, that's great. That doesn't mean anything. It's not moving. It's it's purely math. Uh it serves a purpose uh in, in other arenas, but in this it isn't so it's stories are about people, it's about it's about humans, you know. So how do you humanize the work that you're doing? How do you find, how do you write about somebody? And you don't even make that person up. You know, you can use someone in the community, you know, how, or if the work's already been done, you know, who is someone who's been transformed by the work that you've done, that you're trying to continue to do. And how can you tell their story in the proposal to demonstrate that arc of transformation, which, which is also what storytelling is about, the hero's journey, right? So uh, what, was, what were things like in the beginning? You know, what was the intent? What was the midpoint in the journey? What was the end point in the journey? And, and did you hit the mark, right? Yeah. Um, what, what does that look like? And why does it matter? You know, I mean, I think that's the other important thing is like, why does it matter? So storytelling is a gift. Um, I think we all know how to receive them. Yeah, don't know how to receive a story, but I, I think telling it can be can be a lot more challenging. So I will say one thing that helped me as an editor, and also as a as a grant writer and writer in general, is that I, I forgot who said this. So I'm gonna just be uh, <laughs> I forgot who said this because I've read so many books, but they it was said that good writing is like a clean window, right? Where you are so amazed by what you're seeing on the other side of that window. You are so enraptured by what you're seeing on the other side of that glass that you don't even notice the glass is there.
0: Yeah. So you,
1: you, you want the writing to perform something that's so dreamlike and hypnotic and engaging that you don't even, the reader doesn't even feel like they're reading Mm-hmm. And it's easier said than done. It's, it's a craft and, you know.
0: Well, I was going to say, as I listened to you, I said, oh, wow, I would love to be able to write that way. <laughs> um, <I'm just> <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I ever quite nailed it when I was fundraising, but um, I do think, you know, I think what you said about starting from, with the question, how do I humanize this work, and right? Who are the humans at the center of this? What has their journey been? How have they been transformed, and how can we invite whoever the stakeholder is into this journey, right, um, to help? With yeah, yeah. And I think
1: there's a way to do that without being overly dramatic and sappy, and, right. and you know, um, there's there's a, a realistic way. And sometimes we, we're afraid to sort of pat ourselves on the back for the work that we do, but I think sometimes it's okay as long as we're not showing off and, and, and being overly arrogant to say like, this is meaning meaningful work. I mean, we have to, we have to show that it means something to us. If, yeah. We always say in writing, if, if you're not moved, if you're not freaked out while you're writing scary scenes, like why, why should the reader, you know? Mm-hmm. So if, if you're not feeling it as the writer, how do you expect the reader to feel it? Um, you, we need to be passionate about the work that we do for that to translate right. and, and how we communicate that.
0: I was going to ask, where do you think folks get stuck? I mean, there's, you know, there's a spectrum, right? There's I'm a master storyteller or I am just starting. I've, you know, never written a grant proposal. I've never written a coalition one pager, you know, I've never had to tell a story in this way. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, hopefully people are moving along that spectrum and getting better and building skills, Mm -hmm. uh, even if they are not perhaps naturally gifted at it. Um, From your experience working with organizations that are perhaps new to storytelling um, or closer to this side of the spectrum, (laughs) where do folks get stuck? What's the hardest or some of the hardest things about good storytelling in the sort of social justice, social impact space?
1: Well... I've been on the, I've had to be, I, I've had to evaluate proposals uh, mm-hmm. for a number of organizations, including the Bronx, no, but yeah, the Bronx Council on the Arts was, was teamwork, but um, I learned uh, the most valuable thing we can do. If anyone has the chance out there, if you're a fundraiser or proposal writer, uh, try to get uh, work with an organization where you receive a stack of these, <laughs> and you actually have to read them <laughs> and help to decide. Like, who that's gets so them true.
0: You start like, oh, to see, like, oh wait, do I do that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so
1: I was brought on by the New York State Council on the Arts for three years, about so about five years ago, um, for their literary awards, literary funding, um, and it was, it was it was like three days work because there was that many applications. And what I learned there. And I've also learned as a developmental editor in in fiction and in creative storytelling, storytelling in general, is we often focus too much on what we want, right? Mm-hmm. So um, you know, me, 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 we, 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 me, 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 me we, 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 and we forget that when we are reaching out to a funder, it's a partnership that we're proposing, right? Mm-hmm. So. If, like I said earlier, if you're just approaching them like an ATM, you know, hopefully this proposal gets the uh, the PIN number right and we get the money and sayonara. Um, it doesn't work like that. Right. right. So how, how what is the partnership that you're proposing? Right. And you have to anticipate the reader. And that's something that a lot of writers across the spectrum, whether it's proposal writing in our arena, whether it's in, in fiction and memoir. Uh, we become so nearsighted, we become so myopic with, with what it is that we do and what we need and who we're trying to serve. And that's important, but that's only half of it. Yeah. So you're proposing, you know, what's, what can the fund or foundation, uh, government agency, you know, what is it that they can do beyond giving you money? Is there data you need? Is there uh, capacity building opportunities for your organization? Like, how can you engage them in ways, if possible, beyond them just writing a check for you and, 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 and you know, raving on about you uh, when they show off their portfolio? You know, how can you engage them in, in ways that mean something to them where your, where your values align? Mm-hmm. So I can't tell you how many proposals I've read. where There's like no mention of the funder whatsoever <laughs> beyond I need your money. You know, and that's so unattractive. Uh, but, you know, also you wouldn't know that if, if you're newer to this yeah, or if you, haven't, if you haven't experienced it from the side of, you know, yeah. you, this is the slush pile, this gets funded or this gets published. Right. So but um, from that end, you, you, you really learn that the, the, the proposals that win over people are taking into consideration a human being is going to read this. And most likely a woman, we know, from the statistics in, in, in philanthropy and in the settings I was in, it was usually two thirds women to a third men. Mm-hmm. Um, so a human being is going to read this. So you, you need to compose this with them in mind, you know. So that's what I would say, because, it, you know, we've all we've all been in situations where or in conversations where, you know, somebody wants to do all the talking. Yes. Yeah. You know? <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, like, hello. I'm here, you know. So yeah. well, it's interesting. Um, you know, I remember learning when I was sort of learning about the hero's journey and sort of the elements of storytelling. Um, and this was tough for me when as a founder to to really put this into practice, but we are not the heroes in our own stories. Um, and you know, I work with a lot of founders and it's not that we see ourselves as heroes from an ego perspective, right? None of the founders that I work with, I mean, they are all deeply dedicated to the communities and work, um, people that they work with. But when you're writing a story, the organization becomes the hero, right? What we did, we hired these people, we raised this money, we did this amazing new program. And that centers, right? That's not a story of transformation about any one we're having an impact on. That's We've centered ourselves. And part of what I also hear you saying is not only are we the hero, you know, maybe we're the guide, the funder has to be in the story. <laughs> right. So it's it's the community or the people that we're impacting, and the funder has to see themselves or be able to locate themselves in this story.
1: Right. And what does that look like with who they are? Right. Yeah. Who, who are the people? you know, is it just a foundation? Well, who works at that foundation? You know, who, who are the people that make this work happen? And, and what, what, is there room for them in that work? Um, yeah.
0: I think part of the thing that was tr- tricky, I remember, you know, the I believed very much in my theory of change. Um, and so I saw proposal writing, um, as a form of sort of advocating for a theory of change, right? Mm-hmm. I've I been a lawyer. I was very good at writing persuasive <laughs> advocacy memos and briefs where w- essentially you say, this is what I do and here's why it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not a story, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of what I hear you saying is if, if you flip the question, what do you do and where are we aligned? What do you care about reader and where are we aligned? Then you're gonna write differently. Yeah, that's your question.
1: Yeah. Because then you can tell the foundation, you know, up until this point we've been able to serve hundred people. If uh, if 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 you if if we're awarded what we're asking for or part of that money, um, you know, we'll be able to increase that impact, and you know, and 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 then you sort of imagine, you know, what is their version of that story as the funder, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where do the two missions meet in the middle? and um how is the you know how how can you as a nonprofit organization also fund the mission to further the mission of of what the foundation or funder is trying to do beyond just cutting a check and that can be that can be a hard one to learn but i've found that um the organizations i've worked with and in my own work as a consultant i i had to write a proposal for myself that the new york city department of health funded back in 2019 for um, a storytelling project for LGBTQ youth of color, you know? So I had to sort of turn that most magical powers onto myself And mm-hmm. after learning about working with other organizations in the Bronx Council. Uh, and that, that also went through where there was room for the New York City Department of Health to, um, to sort of activate, you know, to, to do work beyond just cutting a check. Yeah. Um, so that that really helped. That, that that can really really help. And just think about who it is you're engaging and how can you engage them more deeply beyond them. Maybe there are places that are you know only have a staff of two and all they want to do is cut you a check, right? So you know it's it's good if it's good if you know. So again, it comes to relationships and you know knowing knowing what you're working with. But I think just being honest. Um, you know, I think sometimes people boast and they they sort of. Uh, bend the truth a little bit, but I think that stuff always comes to light in the end. You're gonna have to write a final report, most likely, and if you promise <laughs> the world <laughs> and you can't even get halfway there, you know it's not gonna look good on you. And also, the other thing, Brooke, I've noticed is um, building in a case for sustainability yeah. beyond what the the money you're asking for can do. Right? So you have a let's say fiscal year 22 timeline. How is how can you convince the funder that the money they give you is going to help build mechanisms, is going to help to, to, to bolster structures or to build capacity that is going to have a, a desired impact beyond the timeline of the proposal, right? So that when, when December 31st or whatever, June 30th rolls around, you know, the magic doesn't vanish, right? The spell doesn't vanish. Or that work can continue to happen. So. I think sustainability is another important one because we all realize that money is a finite resource. you
0: know. So, so that brings up an interesting question for me. I know that um, I've been doing a lot of talking with um, folks, clients that I work with recently around general operating support hmm. and making a case for um, non-restricted funds, right? Um, I can understand how to apply storytelling practices if I am crafting a program proposal, right? Because I'm talking about people often for, for, for my work, I was talking about young people in a program, right? So I could pick one of them, tell a great story, pick five of them, great. I see a lot of folks struggle with authentic storytelling in GOS proposals, right, or in proposals where what they're asking for is something that will help them set up systems to sustain themselves, right, they're, they're, they're actually saying, no, this is, an, this is for infrastructure support, which people feel like isn't sexy. I happen to love it, but that's <laughs> that's a different different conversation. How do you apply, how do you do storytelling in that context in a way that also brings a funder along in a journey? Because I think that's often where folks fall flat, is like, I can tell great stories, if I have someone to tell stories about, but I'm, what is there to human, like how do I bring the humanity into a, you know, a proposal for a new IT system?
1: Um, my gut answer is, um, you know, getting, getting the, the, the organization has a bio, right? So the organization was founded in so-and-so year by so-and-so for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a board of directors who are probably going to have um, profiles and biographies that are going to align with that work in some way or sometimes not. Um, and you have uh, people who do nonprofit work on the staff or usually um, usually care about the kind of work that they're doing because I did it for years. It doesn't pay. It's not, it's not the best pay, but you know, you, you feel good at the end of the day that you're helping people. So I think all of those stories, the, the sort of the, the cogs, the cogs and the mechanism, um, is just as valid as what the mechanism is trying to create or produce. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how you convince a funder of that? Because that was like the big taboo. You know, we, we we I would get hired by organizations, and we'd come in and go, okay, this foundation no general operating support, you okay. know, <laughs> no GLS, no DLS, program funding only. That's right. And I think people on the philanthropy end, on the, on the funders end, are starting to realize that you can't have the horse without the cart. You know, right. I, I think that things are opening up a little more, yeah. uh, especially coming out of the COVID. In, in this COVID era, I think people are becoming a little less restrictive because now we're starting to hear the human stories about the people who are barely trying, the, the, the people who can barely keep their heads above water who are making this work happen. Mm. Forget about them at the end of the day because they're they're making the work possible so again it's like elevating the human story across all of it why the people on the board uh are are, are dedicated to to advancing the organization what the story of the organization is how has that story changed how will that story change in the future mm-hmm. um, so just you know unpacking as much narrative as possible and, and, and using it when needed but the gos thing i i wish i had more direct experience but i'm going to sort of keep my eye on that because i'm curious know. Know. but yeah. those are stories that need to be told too i've been on that end of things i've been on that payroll you know so and i, I know how harrowing it was sometimes especially for the organizations i worked at the longest were we're always struggling for you know we're always struggling for funding so um Yet, you know, people applauded us for the work we did, but they didn't care if, you know, if, <laughs> <laughs> we actually got paid. <laughs> <on pay> rent.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. No, work. <laughs> I think so much of that is changing. I think you're yeah, exactly I think right.
1: So. I think so. Yeah. yeah, definitely.
0: So what words of advice do you have for my listeners? So let's say I am running a, you know, an incredible organization under $2 million, small growing um, nonprofit doing social impact work. And I get it, right? I get that storytelling is so important. Um, I get that storytelling as a way of humanizing our work is so important. Mm -hmm. Uh, What advice do you have as they sit down to think about the role of storytelling in their organizations generally?
1: I would think about um, all the ways, and you know, all the channels with which you can tell a story. So, in proposal writing, obviously, there's like the word document or Google Docs uh, version of a story. Mm-hmm. Um, using video, getting uh, you know people who uh, people who you've served who are willing to do video testimonials. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I, I've had the fortune of working with organizations that are so under resourced that we sort of had to look for common and ubiquitous yeah um, you know technologies uh, in order to make things happen so um, you know getting also the the value of young people who are hungry for experience and, and internships just you yeah. know human capital like what what are all the ways that you can sort of develop people to help um, serve the organization and 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 what is what is the hierarchy of stories right so you have like Mm -hmm. there's the mission statement and sort of the organizational story which is sort of the peak of the pyramid right Mm -hmm. then you have the executive uh, then you have leadership and governance you have the board and staff Uh, then you have the people that you're engaging and the stakeholders Mm -hmm. like how does what do all those, you know, how how do all those pieces contribute to that ultimate story that you're trying to tell? Because that's what you're leading with. And and that's what your mission statement is going to suggest, you know, and how do you, how do you convince people in your own community um, to get involved? You know, because I think fundraising has never been easy. And we know that you know money attracts money. Yes. <laughs> the <laughs> Metropolitan <laughs> Museum of Art, I'm sure, has to like funders right. uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, They keep writing to me, actually. But um, you know, I just knew. I working uptown. It was just like it, it was so unbelievably hard to get. We got most of the money was uh, government grants, uh, you know, city and state support. Uh, occasionally, some foundation support. Mm-hmm. But it was it was next to impossible to build like. Uh, individual donors and um so there's a lot of organizations struggle you know what is it that you can work with and how can you use the story of the work that you're doing to inspire people because that's when you can get them to join your mailing list and then you you can kind of grow people so how do you get people the money can come later but how do you get people on board based on um, the human stories behind the work that you're doing, whether it's the people doing the work or the people, more importantly, the people who are being served. You know, mm-hmm. how can those stories be used to magnetize people, to sort of attract people, to, to get on board, even if they're just in it to sort of keep getting your newsletter updates mm-hmm. first? You know, how, then how can you over time, uh, you know, develop them and grow them yeah. uh, to, to, help, to help keep, the organization afloat because I, I don't know what the future of fundraising looks like, but um, we never know. We never know where the economy is, is, is going. And, um, but that's to be seen. You know, actually, just continue to inspire basically is like the, the advice, like how can you use story to inspire people um, to, to partner with you and to join you on your organizational journey in whatever way they're able to contribute.
0: I love that, magnetize, I love that word. Yeah: um, Well, Charlie, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. and um, I always love hearing about your work. It's really just. Thank you. It's really incredible what you do.
1: Yeah, if anybody wants to find me, um, charlievasquez.com is my website. I'm all over social media. People can reach out and say hello. If they have any questions, I'm here to help.
0: Is there a particular platform you like best? I'm partial to LinkedIn, but other folks like Instagram. I
1: love LinkedIn. For this stuff, LinkedIn, yes. Awesome. LinkedIn, Charlie Vasquez. Um, yeah, I think that's the, probably the best for, for work-related stuff. But you, people come to me wherever they, they
0: find me, and I'll figure awesome. out. That and you something. post most of your blog posts on LinkedIn. That's where I read a lot of them.
1: I've been, do- I've been better about that, yes.
0: Yeah. 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 Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much, and have a great rest of your week.
1: You too, Brooke. It's great to see you.
0: Great to see you too. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of the nonprofit mastermind podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends. And if you extra liked it, I'd be honored if you'd leave a review. I'd also love to share some free resources with you. If You're a nonprofit founder or leader in the first two years of building your organization. I'd love to invite you to watch my free training, How to Turn Your Social Impact Idea into a Nonprofit. You can sign up at richybabbage.com backslash vision to reality sign up. And if you're a leader of a small six-figure organization and you're ready to scale to the next level of massive impact, check out my free training, Scale Your Small Nonprofit to Big Impact. It's a roadmap to getting the funding, staff, and support you need to hit your first million dollars. You can sign up at richiebabbagecom backslash ready to scale. Finally, if you'd love some more leadership resources and strategies delivered right to your inbox, sign up for my weekly newsletter, Leadership 321. Each week, I curate and share three articles, two resources, and a quote on a theme. That's all for now. Have a great week, and I'll see you back here next week for more Mastermind.